Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, if you do invest in any publicly traded concern, you do so at your own risk. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Ben Whiting, Vice President of Exploration for Dolly Varden Silver Corp, trading as DV on the TSX Venture Exchange and DOLLF in the U.S. The company owns 100% of the Dolly Varden Mines historic silver property. The current favorable price of silver has renewed investor interest in this most historic of the silver mines in northwestern British Columbia in Canada. The property is best considered an advanced exploration stage play with well-understood targets, and I am a shareholder of Dolly Varden Silver Corp. We join Mr. Whiting today at the recent PDAC conference, the Prospectors and Developers Association of Canada, the largest mining conference on earth. Ben, welcome back to the program. Good morning. Thanks for the invitation. If you don't mind, give our audience an overview of Dolly Varden. Dolly Varden's a great silver property in northern British Columbia. It's sometimes referred to as the silver lining of the Golden Triangle. It's a historic project that had four mines on the property and it has this past production history, but we made four new discoveries in 2017, which adds a, a new dimension to the project of Dolly Varden. Let's talk about those discoveries, actually. Part of it is a reconstruction of the structural setting of the property. So the technical team have gone in and have discovered north of Torbrit, which is one of the deposits on the property, we have found an extension of that same horizon, but it was downdropped about 200 meters deeper. So think of that as 600 feet deeper on the north side of a fault. You continue in that same high grade zone where it's 20 plus meters thick, so over 60 feet thick high-grade silver mineralization with some lead and zinc credits. That's one of the four new discoveries. Now, by high-grade, there's some real potential there, because I'm reading in your literature that between 1919 and 1921, Dolly Varden Mine was among the richest silver mine in the British Empire, and grades average at around 1,100 grams per ton, which is more than bonanza. That's absolutely right. One of our discoveries this past year was at the Moose Lamb discovery, and it looks a lot like the old Dolly Varden. Its grade for silver equivalent was 1.2 kilograms per ton. It had 960 grams of silver plus some base metal credits. And that's a brand new discovery that was not on any of the records of this project, which has many targets on it. So this is sort of a bonus for the Belcara Group and your company in that these didn't exist let's say, in the previous iteration of the company. That's correct. One thing that I'd like to bring up since our last discussion on Dolly Varden was that we had a meeting just last week with the provincial government and the First Nations up in the northwestern corner of British Columbia. Some people say are the First Nations, the indigenous people, on side with mining projects. Well, the provincial government is leading an initiative called the Regional Mining Alliance, and the Nishka First Nation and the Toltan First Nation have both signed on to promote mining activities in northwestern British Columbia. So yes, it's a changing situation for the better up in this part of the British Columbia near the Alaska and Yukon borders. What does that mean specifically? How is this a bonus for the company? In the Nishka Lesims government, they have a settled treaty. They have a treaty as one government to another with the provincial and the federal governments. So it's not a situation that's in doubt. 
We have meetings with them. We have agreements that we will provide employment in the area as well. So about one-third of our exploration crew this past season has been on Dolly Varden was Nishka involvement in the employment. So it's part of our team. So they're advocates, more or less. Yes, they become advocates for us for the development of northwestern British Columbia. That's certainly encouraging to shareholders, and I am a shareholder of Dolly Varden Silver. What does the share structure look like? Share structure is fairly tight. It has a very strong investor base. The investor base for institutional investment, Sprott Asset Management, Ingalls and Snyder, U.S. Global are three of the larger institutional investors, and they're backing all of our projects in our group, but particularly Dolly Varden is one of their favorites. Now, you and I have known each other a very long time, well, 10 years, and that's primarily because you were involved with the big success, Orco Silver, and you had this geological team as well. That's correct. I have the pleasure to be working with a very good technical team and management support that are on the financial side. So it's good to have a good team together on these kinds of projects. So going forward during the next year, what can we expect to see? I'm expecting around the middle of May we will be opening up the camp and we're looking at a 25,000 meters of diamond drilling. We'll be moving in a drill rig. It'll start about the first week of June and it will be drilling through to October. The second rig will arrive about a month later and it will be doing more exploration away from the deposits. The first rig will be targeting some of the new discoveries to develop uh, resources into the future. Well, Ben, it's always a pleasure to speak with you and see you. Thanks so much for joining me today on the program here in Toronto at PDAC. You're very welcome. I've been speaking with Ben Whiting, Vice President of Exploration for Dolly Varden Silvercorp, trading as DV on the TSX Venture Exchange and DOLLF in the U.S. Once again, I'm Ellis Markton, and I'm a shareholder of Dolly Varden Silvercorp, and the company is a paid sponsor of this program. Find Dolly Varden on our website, ellismartreport.com. High-quality but undervalued mining stocks are finally starting to attract the attention of investors. Get the latest news and resource stock investment opportunities with a subscription to Resource World magazine. Published six times a year, Resource World features in-depth articles on mineral area plays, commodities of interest, and valuable investment insights by highly qualified market analysts, geologists, and mining journalists. Go to resourceworld.com to find out more. Welcome back to the Ellis Martin Report. I'm Troy Duran. Join me as we catch up with Daryl Rebeck, president of Lexigy. They're a biotech company trading on the TSX Venture Exchange with the symbol LXG. They're over the counter at LXXGF. Daryl Rebeck is the president of Lexigy. So if you're in an industry where you need to test samples, the food industry, for example, or medical or veterinarian, your inspectors will take a sample and send it back to the lab for testing. Then they wait for the results to come back before they can package the food, say, and ship it back to the consumer. So this can take days. But meanwhile, the food just sits there costing money and not getting any fresher. And of course, if you're in the medical industry, your patients want to know what's going on early on. So you have the opportunity for a company like Lexagene. They sell equipment with proprietary technology that allows you to test your samples on site, which saves you time and money and allows you to service your customers faster than ever before, eliminating that one bottleneck that's sometimes the biggest obstacle to moving forward. So let's catch up with Daryl Rebeck, the president of Lexagene. How are you, Daryl? Good, thank you. How are you? 
I'm doing really good. Sounds like you guys have been pretty busy since the last time we talked. I think we spoke in November, right? That's correct, yeah. Tell me what's been going on since November. So we've grown really, really quickly, and we've gone from a concept to commercialization potentially real shortly here. So we've gone from a three-employee firm to up to 25 in the next couple months. We have hired five new high-level team members, which are really impressive, which we'll get into later. Mm -hmm. We have a new 17,500-square-foot facility in Boston, which really completes our rapid growth phase, where we're now going to be able to have people come by, see and touch the instrument, and have a fully operating biosafety level two lab, uh, which the CDC specifies and approves. Um, so really, you're going to come in and see this company that is really going quickly and growing very rapidly. Um, and this is our, our very exciting rapid growth phase. We just finished a 5.4 million bought deal. It was a $5 million deal from Canaccord. Due to high demand, we did the over allotment. So we just completed that as well. So again, things are really progressing quickly. Tell us about this $5.4 million bot deal. So one of the things in our business, as we all know, is if you have the demand, a bot deal is a very attractive thing. And it's very attractive in the U.S. as well, which a lot of people don't see as much. So due to the fact that a bot deal gets completed, what that means is the firm is willing to put their capital up whether the demand's there or not, which is a huge show of confidence from a firm saying, you know, no matter what happens, here's your $5 million. In our case... We had a huge amount of demand. We did the five million, you know, instantaneously. We did the over allotment a couple of weeks later, and that really allows us to grow out our team, to grow out our facility, to grow out this really exciting phase that we're in right now, where we're going to be in sales by the end of the year. Yeah, it's really exciting. Now, and, and of course, this seventeen thousand five hundred square foot facility is the major part of that growth. Tell us about that. So yeah, I mean, we are now going from a subcontract model where Boston Engineering was building the unit, and that is is an expensive model, but a very efficient one because on the alpha prototype, which we are now complete on, you want to make sure that works and you need the best and the brightest to remove all the risks from that unit. There was a long list of things that could potentially go wrong. There are five full-time engineers that are the best and the brightest working on it. All those risks have been mitigated, and that's why you use a company like Boston Engineering, who's built products for many Fortune 50 companies, Department of Homeland Security, Department of Defense, etc. We now move to an in-house model, where in-house we have our own scientists, we have our own engineers, we have our own facility, we have our own testing lab, but as I said before, biosafety level two lab, which means you're testing dangerous pathogens on site that can cause a lot of harm. So you have to adhere to these protocols. You have to vent it to the roof. You have to have everything done to a very specific format due to the CDC approval. Um, So we've really changed our model, which is where the exciting part of the company comes is we are now this company that is moving quickly with our own people. And ultimately, when you're looking at a sale, which is most likely our ultimate exit not too far away, you also do include the people in that as well. So when a company buys you, they don't just buy the product, they buy the people. So we now have a team that is very, very impressive. It's, it's a very deep team, one that I haven't seen in, in a long time in something of, of this nature, and one that we're incredibly excited about because it really ensures that our plans are all on track, and we are on track, and we really delivered exactly what we said we were going to this whole time. And now you're in Boston and uh, you got the Boston Red Sox. You're in good shape. Yeah, I mean, we are based in Beverly, just outside of Boston. And everyone in the facility is, is obviously in the U.S. We've moved our CFO. We have a CFO now that was with a company that sold for $300 million. Our new CFO completes our process of being a fully U.S. company. 
The last process that we're looking at doing, but we're being very careful to do it at the right time, is we're looking at an uplift to NASDAQ. And that's something that's really exciting where you're a full-fledged U.S. company. The breadth of attention on you really changes at that point because right now we're cross-dual listed, which has worked very well for us. But the next point in our growth is to become a full NASDAQ company with that profile. Oh, so exciting. Sounds like you're lifting off. Let's talk about your new team members. Yeah, so maybe I'll start with the originals. I mean, Jack, again, started his career at Livermore Labs. Livermore Labs is funded to a billion two by Department of Homeland Security, Department of Defense and Department of Energy. The best and the brightest end up there. There's no question. I mean, they go right back to your kindergarten teacher to make sure that you're, you know, the right person for those jobs in terms of your mental profile and obviously your intelligence and your experience comes in there. Jack left there, went to a company called Quantalife. That sold, you know, 18 months later for 167 million U.S. with only one quarter of sales, which is very common in business. Uh, then went to BioRad, which is a $9 billion company now, uh, left that to run this. And what we've done in the recent past is we have another individual from BioRad, again, $9 billion company. He's basically the head of bioinformatics and was there. We have an ex-senior scientist of a $120 billion company. We have an ex-senior engineer of a billion-dollar diagnosis company. We have a booker who was senior management of an $85 billion and a $9 billion company. And it really humbles you when you're working with people like this because they've worked startups, but they've also worked with these massive companies. And these massive companies are part of our exit plan. Um, the longer we're around, obviously, the more the progress we're going to make. But you're looking at some of the smartest people that I've seen in a long time in a, in a small cap, really, or emerging growth company. And the exciting part is these people can go anywhere and they can definitely be attracted and they are attracted by everyone. And they're coming over here with pay cuts and the interest of options and what those can be worth based on what we're working on. That's a huge show of confidence. Moving into the summer, you're looking at staffing up as well. Yeah, I mean, by, the, by summer, we're going to have 25 people. And we're now at that point, a full-fledged diagnostic company. And we ha- will have a product. We will be going into beta. We'll be really ramping up for commercialization. And that is a huge, very exciting inflection point for a diagnostics company or med device companies. Because what we've really done is taken something that started in 2001, essentially after 9-11. This unit was at the Olympics. It was at Grand Central Station, et cetera. And through the progression of this company, um, of the product story, it then went to UC Davis and was used for respiratory illnesses and was funded by the National Institute of Health. And now we have it and we're building the fourth generation. And what's really exciting is we've gone from this concept to the finishing of an alpha device and now we're going into beta and by the end of the year we're in sales so by the summer people will be able to come by our facility and they'll walk in the door and you'll be blown away at how fast this is growing and how legit everything is in terms of we'll become a real competitor in this industry in very short order excellent moving into beta where do you see the best and earliest opportunities for fast growth so for us i mean we've always discussed the fact that Food safety, veterinarian diagnostics, water quality, aquaculture, etc., which are $18 billion industries, are low-hanging fruit, for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. The regulations are not that difficult. And more importantly, these industries are in huge demand for some critical needs that aren't being met. So if you take something like veterinarian diagnostics, for example, if you have a pet, you realize how expensive it is. And the vet business isn't as say, sexy as humans. Um, and if you look at pandemics, because we have a very strong application for pandemic prevention. But if you look at vet diagnostics, it's an industry that has huge margins. People pay whatever the, that the costs are at your vet. 
And it's something that's widely accepted. You don't have insurance getting in the way. It's a wide open business. And it's a business where it's been done a certain way for so long, which is accepted, but it's this process where you collect your sample, you send it off site and you wait three to five to eight days. And what happens in that time is that animal's getting more sick, the owner's getting more frustrated, a lot of misdiagnosis results in fatalities. And it's very stressful for the owners, but it's also incredibly stressful for the vet who is guessing essentially when they diagnose these disease. What it does for the vet industry, for example, is that person can swab, take a urine sample, blood, whatever it may be, stick it in the instrument in-house, and within an hour, you're going to know exactly what's wrong with that pet. Veterinarian right now is massive for us. We're getting huge, huge demand and a lot of traction. Food safety is another one. It's a very low-cost industry. It's very hard to compete in, and we can compete because our costs are so low. Water quality, anywhere really you need to test something on site. You can imagine cruise ships. These are huge issues. One person gets sick, the whole boat's sick. They're not taking those samples off site, say, in Italy and getting test results done in three to five days because it's too late and it's already done. So if you can imagine even that industry alone, take your sample, stick it in a machine an hour later, say, okay, end of the day, we tested everything, we're good, there's no listeria around. So there's a, a massive amount of demand, but really those industries are our first focus. Our long-term focus obviously is human clinical. Uh, we want to be in hospitals. We want to provide that same service. But at this time right now, it's lesser of a focus in a large way based on the fact that investors CFDA a lot of the time, and it really turns them off because we all know how expensive and time-consuming it is. And these other industries are so ripe for adoption, and they're so in need of something that can help them that, that we're just getting a ton of interest and demand. Yeah, it really doesn't take very much imagination to uh, to see the, the tremendous potential. Lexagene is the biotech company. President is Daryl Rebeck. You'll find them trading on the TSX Venture Exchange with the symbol LXG over the counter. LXXGF, coming soon to a NASDAQ near you. Also, if you're anything like me, you know, you don't want to buy anything before you can actually put your hands on it and touch it and feel it and see exactly how it works. Well, you might not necessarily be able to physically put your hands on a Lexagene machine, but you can see the video of exactly how this works at their website, Lexagene.com. That's L-E-X-A-G-E-N-E. Com. And not only the great video that explains how the Lexagene equipment works, but they do a great job of keeping investors and potential investors and people generally interested in Lexagene informed on their latest developments and news releases. So visit their website. Very useful tool, Lexagene.com. Daryl, it's great to talk to you today. Oh, great to talk to you. Again, for further information on Lexagene, feel free to visit their website, Lexagene.com. And for information on all of our client companies, stock prices, press releases, and more, visit EllisMartinReport.com. For the Ellis Martin Report, I'm Troy Duran. Do you have questions that need answers about our sponsor companies? Contact them. Find the logos of all our sponsors on the homepage of our website. EllisMartinReport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Robert Mintak, CEO and Director of Standard Lithium, trading in the U.S. as STLHF and on the TSX Venture Exchange as SLL. Standard Lithium is a near producer of lithium brine. Even though we've been covering the lithium and battery mineral space for quite some time, we're still at the beginning of a complete revolution, if not full transition, into a world dominated by electric vehicles. 
You may not have one now, but most likely you will someday. Right now there's a mandate by major automakers to convert completely to electric vehicles in very short order, even though the supply for these battery-powered vehicles with regard to lithium is just not here yet. We've found a solution for some of that supply right here in California, and it's nearly ready for offtake or market. The Bristol Dry Lake Playa is a flat salt dry lake that occupies approximately 155 square kilometers in a 2,000 square kilometer arid drainage basin. Standard Lithium's partnership with two permitted brine operators provides it with immediate access to raw brine. The project covers 35,000 acres and covers the majority of the playa and overlies a basin that is greater than 1,000 meters deep. Standard's position in this nationally important resource is highly strategic and personally, I've never seen an operation quite like it. Robert, welcome back to the program. It's nice to speak with you again. You too, Alice. Thank you very much for the call. The last time we got together, we were on site at Standard Lithium's Bristol Dry Lake Project in the Mojave at Amboy, California. Very exciting to see the extent of the operation on site. Yeah, when we met, you got to see firsthand that we were working in California on a location that has extensive history of mining, mining from brine. So it's not virgin ground that we're working on where we have a lot of risk in a very controlled environment like in California where that could be problematic. Bristol Dry Lake has been in production for almost 100 years. So the brine mining or brine harvesting, however you like to call it, has been active in that area and you could see it firsthand. It's quite interesting to compare the difference between a mining project that is just a piece of staked land and to look at Bristol Dry Lake where you have evaporation ponds, drilling going on nearby rail, and as an investor, that's something you relish seeing. Plus, your production costs are nothing what they'd be otherwise. Yeah, the exploration budget is greatly reduced and we're able to really fast track the important process work, which on a lithium project is as vital as the exploration work. But usually it falls a year or two later before you can actively begin processing large volumes of brine. We're very fortunate. We signed agreements with both the permitted operators in Bristol Lake, gave us immediate access to brine, gave us the ability to eliminate, primarily reduce permit risk. So we can fall under some of the areas of disturbance that the current mining companies have, the plan of operations that they work under. So exploration, drilling, and all that activities we're able to fast track. As you saw when we were there a few weeks back, we did have an ongoing drill campaign, which should wrap up in early April, a total of seven wells targeted and drilled. We finished five of them. We're beginning pumping tests. We're going to drill deeper than anyone else has ever drilled in Bristol Lake. Earlier geophysics that we had done highlighted the basin was over two times as deep as previously reported. It's over 3,000 feet deep at its deepest point. So we're targeting to drill down several thousand feet now in the basin. No one's tested that. It's promising results, we believe, at depth in this environment. So everything's moving really quickly there. And of course, as we highlighted through our news releases and we touched on previously, our other project is in Arkansas, which is kicking off resource assessment as we speak. The management team of this company, which includes you, of course, really doesn't take on anything that's not, as you would say, fast-tracked. And I understand in Arkansas you have many, many core samples that already exist. They don't go bad. You're saving a great deal on drilling expenses, and you have data that you can process and get to work on right away. Yeah, we're very fortunate. Just to pick up the significantly large footprint 
that we had in Arkansas through our agreement with Tetra Technologies. We have an agreement with in California as well. That relationship really, we're working together very well. So with the agreement we have in Arkansas for up to 33,000 acres of brine leases in a fair way with large volumes of brine production, neighboring Albemarle's large land package in southern Arkansas. The area was initially explored for oil and gas and hundreds of wells were drilled into these 33,000 acres. So we've got over 250 wells had been drilled in or around the land package. Of those 250 plus wells, we've got all the downhole geology, the data for that. On 30 of the wells, we've got all the downhole geophysics. And on 15, we've got core samples. So the core samples are important on a brine project because that allows you to see what the porosity can be. So how much volume of fluid can reside in the aquifer. So we can begin doing the tests on what the volume of brine may look like. We're also working on agreements with independent oil and gas companies that still have wells that aren't plugged that will be able to re-enter sample for brine chemistry and then eventually do pump tests on. Additionally, part of this data package we picked up included over 200 miles, 200 miles of 2D seismic, which is going to allow us using a very robust data points to build a very powerful model of what the basin looks like without having to spend five, ten million dollars to get all of that data. We put together a very economic data lease package with the geophysics company that owns that. So that's going to really push us at a fast pace to get a resource report. We're targeting late Q2 this year. So we just acquired the land package and we're going to have our goal is to have a very strong technical 4300 report showing the lithium opportunity there. And as we put out a news release just about a month ago, we've signed an LOI, which will be, we anticipate, executed to a definitive agreement in the next month or so to build a pilot plant in close proximity to those mineral leases. But that pilot plant, the agreement we have is to locate it adjacent to an existing chemical process facility that's already permitted already has a brine pipeline that we'll be able to tap into to run the pilot plant with, comes with power, steam, ultra-pure clean water, and a trained workforce of brine handlers, so we'll quickly be able to get a pilot plant up and running with a lithium-rich brine stream and all of the required ancillary items that we'll need for that, so the water, power, disposal wells to put brine back into the ground with. And that we, we can show fast track subject to all the things coming into place. You know, our goal is to commission that pilot plant early next year. And we just closed a large financing, just over $20 million Canadian bought deal, closed at that in the middle of February. So we're well positioned to make all of the significant milestones ahead of us achievable. You've been in the sector for quite some time. Have you ever seen anything like this with a junior mining company in the battery space? And I understand you might be biased as you answer this question. You know, there's 200 plus companies either on the TSX or the ASX or AIM listing companies looking to fill the supply gap in the lithium space. Most of them are chasing similar stories, either a brine projects through conventional development programs in South America or Nevada or hard rock projects. All of them have opportunities, but they have the inherent time to production hurdles and we look at the history of lithium projects coming online there's been some good news out of australia with hard rock projects but we're looking at trying to be a brine project which is generally considered to be lower cost 
for production. They take a better part of a decade to, to bring online, most of them. We looked at it when we joined Standard and we put the business plan together was we find a way to, best case scenario, cut that in half. And the only ways to do that we figured were to find opportunities that were brownfield. Globally, there's not a lot of brownfield opportunities Thankfully, no one else had conceived of this business model, so we picked up two of the most prospective ones in North America. So I'm not patting myself on the back, but you know, we had a business plan. We achieved our milestones and our objectives for 2017. 2018 started well with the financing and the agreements we put in place. We've got some other significant milestones to achieve this year, but they are within arm's reach. I know you're going to be constructing the pilot plant. Now, is it going to be in Arkansas or California? No, the pilot plant that we've signed the LOI and then working on the definitive agreement is in Arkansas. One of the key components of that, though, is we'll be able to, because in California we've got a rail spur and siding at the Bristol Lake project, we'll be able to take large volumes of pre-concentrated brine. California, we're looking at doing a hybrid process of some evaporation because we're in the Mojave, one of the highest evaporation rates in the world, pre-concentrating brine. And then for the pilot stage, not for the commercial development, but for the pilot stage, shipping that brine via rail car to Arkansas, where we have a rail siding at the pilot plant location and running both projects, Arkansas and California, through the pilot plant there. Modified version for each, for the brine for Arkansas will work for the chemistry and the ambient temperatures and all of that, all of the component elements that make it Arkansas brine. And then we'll simulate what California brine, the ambient temperature and the chemistry. They'll have each have their own stages on the pilot plant, but the pilot plant is adaptable for that. So we'll be able to run both processes through it, manage our manpower and our burn on it so we don't have to build two pilot plants. Since you don't have to go to the market for half a billion dollars, your share structure looks very, very nice. We've been fortunate and strategic in, we've financed three times now. So last year, we financed the 25 cents, $5 million in January 2017, just over $7 million at 75 cents. Neither of those financings had warrants attached to them. And then the last finance, we closed at $2.10. So we've raised about $33 million Canadian over the last year and kept the share structure down to right now float 72 million. We've got a strong treasury and our investors, a lot of them are long on the project. They're all, a lot of them are up significantly, but because we've kept the share structure tight, we believe we can, as we move forward, our goal is to keep it as little dilution as possible. The agreements we've signed have been very economic. There hasn't been a lot of capital requirements to maintain them. There's no work requirements required on them, and they're all structured so that we can develop the projects, bring value to shareholders, and then grow from there. Well, we certainly look forward to visiting the Smackover Project in Arkansas in the very near future, and I'm sure that our audience would like to see some video from that area as well, Robert. It's going to be fun. Yeah, no, it's not an environment like a typical brine project, and it is in the chemical heartland of the United States. So there's pipelines, there's power, there's water, there's a very favorable permitting regime there. They're used to this type of work. It's chemical companies, oil and gas companies. So we believe it's, in our estimation, the best place in the world to stage a modern lithium process facility. It's got all the elements we need, cheap chemical reagents, reasonably priced power, a permitting regime, a geology and a hydrogeology that are favorable. There's a, a large amount of lithium in the, you know, subject to getting the technical reports out. I can't give you a volume on it, but there is lithium in the brine there. It's been noted from many publications. You've got Argentina, begins with an A for lithium, Australia, and Arkansas, 
we hope will be another jurisdiction where people are talking about lithium. Robert, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining me today on the program. Oh, I appreciate your interest too, Alice. It's always great to talk to you. I've been speaking with Robert Mintek, CEO and Director of Standard Lithium, trading in the U.S. as STLHF and on the TSX Venture Exchange as SLL. Learn more about Standard Lithium by going to their website, standardlithium.com. For the Ellis Martin Report, I'm Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Harry Barr, the chairman and CEO of New Age Metals, trading as NAM on the TSX Venture Exchange and PAWEF in the U.S. New Age Metals Incorporated is a mineral exploration company focused on the discovery, exploration, and development of Canada's largest primary platinum group metals, PGM deposit, the River Valley PGM project located in the Sudbury region of Northern Ontario. The company also has a lithium division with five lithium projects, of which three are drill ready. The company's philosophy is to be a project generator explorer with the objective of optioning or joint venturing their projects with major and junior mining companies through to production. We joined Mr. Barr today at the recent PDAC conference, the Prospectors and Developers Association of Canada, the largest mining conference on earth. Harry, welcome to the program. Thanks for having us. If you don't mind, give our listeners an overview of the company. New Age Metals has two green metals, two divisions. We have the largest undeveloped platinum group metal deposit in Canada near Sudbury, Ontario. Major metallurgical complex, 100 kilometers away from us. And we have a lithium division in Manitoba. Now let's talk about platinum and catalytic converters. They're not going away anytime soon, are they? Absolutely not. Just in the last few years, Ellis, I would say 10 years ago, palladium, about 40% of its use was in catalytic converters. Today it's 80%. Really the supply globally is kind of strained and politically challenging in other parts of the world. That's correct. Most of it comes from Russia and South Africa. Very few projects in Canada and the U.S. There's only one producer in Canada, North American Palladium. It's doing very well right now. It ships all its concentrates a thousand kilometers from Thunder Bay to the metallurgical complex that we're a hundred kilometers away from. It does that because Sudbury's both big mining companies have produced platinum group metals as a buy product for over 60 years. So we have a major metallurgical multi-billion dollar complex 100 kilometers away. The only other producer in Canada ships its concentrates a thousand kilometers to that same area. Now what are the economics with regard to the project potentially? Well first of all just talking about platinum. Platinum went to about 800 some dollars. A couple of years ago it was about 1800 dollars. It's now over a thousand. But the most exciting thing in our group because we're primarily a palladium project first. We have eight different metals. It is the best performing forming metal in the last year. It literally went from 400 and some dollars to over a thousand. So we have two metals that are precious metals, but they're industrial metals. And uh, again, we're in a big mining area and we have a very large deposit. Well, let's talk about the size of that land area, if you don't mind. Yeah, we have 16 kilometers. We have over 16,000 acres. Most of it, 12,000 acres are in a full mining lease. That took us six years and 600,000 to get to. You can drive a two-wheel vehicle to our car. The Sudbury mining area area is a big metallurgical complex that's produced for over 120 years. The best universities, the best drilling companies, the best assay companies, everything you need in mining, including the local people and the indigenous people, understand mining and we have a great relationship with everyone there. It's just, in my opinion, one of the best places in Canada to be in the mining industry. And you're no stranger to the area personally, are you? No, I've worked in the Sudbury Mining District for over 20 years. Grew up in Ontario, actually grew up in a family farm 
farm just above four hours drive from here near Ottawa, Ontario, and we still have that farm today since 1866. I know Ontario, it's a great mining jurisdiction, one of the best in the world. We, we're very happy working in Ontario. You call yourself a green metals company, Harry. You've got lithium. Let's talk about that. While we're pretty heavily into catalytic converters, and that's not going to go away anytime soon, you are preparing for the large deficiency in lithium for what's coming on board with regard to automakers in the future. That's correct. Now we're moving to Manitoba, another great province to work in. What a lot of people don't know, there's a, there's a mine there. It's called the Tanko Mine, and it's been mining a pegmatite. So looking at lithium and hard rock, you first of all need a pegmatite, then you need to find spodumene in the pegmatite, and that's where you find the lithium. So we were able to hire, I think, one of the best lithium and rare earth metals man in Canada, who had been the exploration manager for that Tanko Mine. We put together in 16 a very large land package in this extensive pegmatite belt. In fact, we have the largest claim blocks there now. In less than two years, we've taken five of those projects and we have three of them at the drill-ready stage. And then our stated goal, because we're working on the Platinum Group Metals, that's our major focus, was to find a joint venture partner. And we probably announced a very good joint venture on January 15 to 18. And just to give you some of the terms, the, the company would have to put near $4 million into exploration. We're the field manager, which means we're the operator of the project, so we get 10% for that. We get up to 3 million shares of their company over time. We get 210,000 cash, and we get a 2% royalty on all five properties. So really, it's sort of a royalty streaming deal with regard to the lithium project, and you don't have to spend any of your capital on it. No, no. We, we have them spending at least a half a million dollars this year. We'll drill on two projects, and over time, over the next three years, they'll spend up to 3 million. But we have another very interesting twist in our contract. When they get to 60%, and if they were to hit a major deposit, we have the option to back in for 42. So we're not out of the project by any means, and we have someone else spending their capital. We're the field manager using our top geologist's expertise from the area, and we will be drilling on this project by August, September, October. Let's talk about the management. Management team, I'm very proud to have. Everyone on this company is technical but myself. I started in the industry as a CEO at 24, and I've been running public companies since then. On our board of directors, we have four very technical people, geologists and engineers. One of them was Anglo Platinum, which is the largest producer in the world of Platinum Group Metals. Started as a young man there and recently retired. He's still a young man, in my opinion, at 65 and he was the head of the whole corporation in terms of exploration. His partner and second in command retired too and came on to our advisory board as a major shareholder. Our president of the company has spent his whole career and his private company to this day still does all of Anglo Platinum's exploration work. And so we have just in those three guys there almost a hundred years of Platinum Group Metals experience and there aren't many men in the world that have this kind of technical. Over and above a technical expertise, over and above that we all our other directors and and consultants to us are geologists or engineers. So a very senior technical team. Where do you see the company heading out in the next 12 months? What can we look for as shareholders? Well, um, something very exciting before the end of March. In Canada, we have to do what's called a 43-101 resource calculation. I think a lot of your people probably have heard about it. Some haven't. What that is is a complete third-party update on the resources of the project. The last one we did was in 2012. It was an excellent, excellent, very multi-million ounce resource. 
and I obviously can't say where we're going here yet, but we've done a lot of work and we expect the next resource to come out before the end of March and it, we expect it to be bigger. Secondly, we have done a large geophysical exploration plan this winter following up from a new discovery we made in 15, 16 and 17. We have now added another 2,000 meters to this, so that's on the northern portion of the property. And our goal up there is to put about a million of the many millions of ounces together in one area. The long-term goal is to have a series of open pits over 16 kilometers of mineralization. We would concentrate on site and ship to the metallurgical complex 100 kilometers away. This puts you heavily into the battery chemicals area with regard to especially lithium. Are you looking ahead to offtake right now? Are you a potential takeout candidate? Let's look ahead five years, which is almost impossible to do, but I'm just curious as to what we might see. We have to look at our expertise. We have people on our boards that have been in producing mines, whatever, but we are explorers. That's what we do, and we find deposits, and eventually we need a major partner. Somewhere, I would think, in the next year, you're going to see a, a major mining company. Personally, I've done 43 deals as a CEO with major mining companies, and quite frankly, over 300, like the one I told you about on our lithium with junior mining companies. Going forward, we will find a big company. It will be a major company that believes in platinum group metals, especially platinum group metals. But keep in mind, we also have cobalt in our property. We have nickel. We have copper. We have gold. We have rhodium. And we have platinum and palladium, with palladium being the main asset on the property. So we have lots of different metals there. Going from there, we would end up with a major mining company or a private equity company. Now, more and more on the lithium side, big companies that you would never hear of are actually coming almost down to the mine level to get their lithium and cobalt supply. In the next year or two, I think you'll see us partner up with someone that will help us take this all the way, or perhaps even buy it. Harry, what's your take on the junior mining sector right now? Well, as, as you know, we're at the biggest mining convention in the world, and this is the biggest we've seen in at least seven or eight years. The metal prices start to increase last year. Worldwide demand is going up. There hasn't been as much exploration as we'd like in the last seven years, and I really think 218 is the beginning of the change in the junior mining industry for the good. And you think anything related to clean tech might have a larger audience than our typical mining investor? Well, that's a good point. What I learned in getting into lithium, and it was only in 216, I'm not an expert, but we have an expert on our team who heads up our program, was a lot of younger people are buying the shares of cobalt and lithium, which really was exciting because, as you know, this industry is mostly the buyers are 40 to 80 who understand the industry. But no, the new green metals are definitely attracting much younger buyers. Well, Harry, it's always a pleasure to see you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having us, Els. I've been speaking with Harry Barr, the chairman and CEO of New Age Metals, trading as NAM on the TSX Venture Exchange and PAWEF in the U.S. For more information, go to the company's website, newagemetals.com. I'm Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Dale Brentliff, geologist, speaking on behalf of Orex Minerals, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as REX, and the U.S. as ORMNF. Oryx Minerals is a Canadian-based junior mineral exploration company with an impressive portfolio of large gold, silver, and copper exploration projects on renowned mineral trends in Mexico, including the Caneto, San Luis del Cordero, and Sandra Escobar projects. 
as well as in Canada with the Jumping Josephine Gold Project. Each project has impressive merits of its own. Packaged together, the chance of Oryx making the next big resource discovery increases dramatically. The company's directors and management include industry professionals with a consistent track record of identifying and advancing successful mineral exploration projects. We joined Mr. Britliff today at the recent PDAC conference, the Prospectors and Developers Association of Canada, the largest mining conference on earth. Dale, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Alice. It's nice to be here. If you don't mind, give us an overview of the company. Oryx Minerals is active in Mexico. We have three projects in Durango State. We have a field office based there, and we're busy exploring and looking for new opportunities in that silver trend in Mexico. Well, Durango State is a fantastic jurisdiction, actually, in Mexico to do business, isn't it? It is. As most of us know, Durango has many large silver mines. It's known as a silver state locally. We've had success there in the past. We know the area, and we're busy trying to advance our three projects at the moment. Let's talk about those projects, if you don't mind. Many people would be aware of the Sandra Escobar project. We've recently released the news that we've done a deal, a non-binding LOI with Pan American Silver. That solidifies our position in the camp. What we've done with Pan American is we've combined our claims and their claims. Ours are a JV with Canisil, so there's a three-way JV that consolidates all of the claims together. And uh, together we're going to be funding exploration there over the next three years. Pan American have pledged $5 million towards exploration and Canisil or XJV are going to put in $1 million over the next three to four years. And hopefully we're going to advance that project considerably over the next couple of years. Let's talk about the team, starting with you. I'm a geologist. I uh, was born uh, just north of Perth in Western Australia, and my dad's a metallurgist. Uh, I grew up in the mining industry. I grew up around conveyor belts and shaker tables, so mining's in my blood, and I've never even strayed away from that. I have a degree in botany and also a geology. I, the botany degree is an environmental science degree. In my early years, I decided that would be a good way to go, to be a, a proactive mining advocate. I always knew there was a relationship between the soil and the rocks beneath and the plants above. It's quite obvious in Western Australia you can follow geology based on the, the types of plants growing there. So I always thought they were a good mix. Geology sparked my attention very early on. I've always had a love of landforms, geography and, and travels. It's just a natural progression for me to go exploring for gold originally and now I'm, I'm looking for silver as well. So with you and your life it's the environment first? Of course. Well we live in the environment, it's a balance. Everything's a balance and we need people to mitigate uh, damage in the environment. As we know mining is something of a touchy subject with a lot of people. I think mining is essential for our way of life and I think there's a way that we can mine responsibly for, for many generations to come. Do you think there's a misconception now with regard to the public? Is mining above board all the way with countries like Canada and Australia really leading the world in environmental technology and, and soil remediation and putting back water in the ground cleaner than it came out? Of course, we strive to be better every time we go into a project. We try to do better. Technology is getting better. Social responsibility is more to the forefront in many of these companies. I think it comes down to people as well. The way you treat people, the way you engage the local people in the area you're working in is very important. Gone are the days of throwing money at communities. We have to work with the communities and work to better their lives as well. I mean, we can't work without their help and we certainly can't continue to work if we damage the environment or damage the water or poison things. It's not acceptable anymore. That's certainly good to hear and I'm sure our audience will appreciate that as well. What can we expect to see for the next 12 months? First and foremost, we're going to get going on the San Luis del Cordero project. That's a new acquisition for Oryx. We've done a deal with Altiplano for 
100% ownership. It's in Durango. It has great infrastructure to it. It's historically seen a lot of work. It has about 60 drill holes in it, and I believe there's a small resource on it. We intend to expand that, do some drilling, and expand that. That's the first project that will be off the ranks this year. The Conetto project is a joint venture between Oryx and Presnia. Secondly, Sandra Escobar, we are forming a technical committee with Pan American Silver, Canisil, and ourselves. We plan to set a budget for this year, and we intend to run some geophysics, continue our mapping and geochemistry, and we plan to culminate that with some drilling at the end of the year, or toward in the later half of the year. With Conetto, we're currently working with Fresneo to devise the next round of exploration on that project as well. And what does the share structure look like for the company? At the moment, there's about 100 million shares outstanding in Oryx. With warrants as well, it's about 126 million, uh, with a share price of about 17 cents. Dale, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining me today on the program in Toronto. It's been my pleasure. Thanks. I've been speaking with Dale Brentliff of Oryx Minerals, trading as REX on the TSX Venture Exchange and ORMNF in the U.S. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Patrick Highsmith, the CEO of Pure Energy Minerals. Pure Energy. Trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol PE.V and in the U.S. as PEMIF. Pure Energy Minerals is an emerging leader in the development of innovative, resource-efficient mineral exploration and project development, notably with lithium. The company is focused on its 9,500-acre flagship lithium brine project located in Clayton Valley, Nevada. Lithium is used in a wide assortment of mobile devices, hybrid electric vehicles, and power storage. Pure Energy Minerals announced that the company had entered into an agreement with Tesla Motors for the potential supply of lithium hydroxide that they intend on producing from Clayton Valley, not far from the Tesla Gigafactory. We join Mr. Highsmith today at the recent PDAC conference, the Prospectors and Developers Association of Canada, the largest mining conference on Earth. Patrick, welcome to the program. Thanks. Good to be here, Alice. This is the largest mining convention in the world. Happens every year. Over 30,000 people here this year. Why are we here, Patrick? You know, it's, it's a gathering place for the world, Ellis. I think this is my 21st in a row. The first 10 years I was in the business, I was too technical to do things like come to PDAC. But frankly, today it's a meeting place for business-to-business, investors, and we can come here and have meetings more efficiently than anywhere I've ever been in this business. So busy week, lots of meetings. And deals do happen here, don't they, occasionally? I've been told that deals happen here. That is true, and you do get together with movers and shakers. Money meets issuers meet doers of things. We think we're a doer of things and uh, we've had a busy week here. For shareholders of Pure Energy, and I am one, what can we look forward to during the next 6 to 12 months? Right now at Pure Energy, we are really intensely focused in two areas. First, that pilot plant in Nevada that I've been telling you about. We spent a week in Israel. Walter Weinig, our vice president for projects and permitting, and I were there working hand-in-hand with the engineering teams from Tenova Advanced Technologies, NORAM, and also the guys from Suez Water out of France, the French water company that acquired GE Water. And we are really looking at sort of simulating that pilot plant, looking at the hazards of safety and operability, and doing really the final design work, working with process flow diagrams, practically the blueprint of the first pilot plant for this exciting new technology. Maybe it's worth talking about that at a later time, or we can spend a little more time on what we learned there. I do have a question for you, Patrick. You'll be the first company of its kind, basically, to employ this type of technology, won't you? We are. We're the most advanced company in advancing through the testing of the Tenova lithium recovery technologies. We've gone through a mini pilot plant. We've been working with those guys on the design 
design and here in the Q2 of this year we will finalize the design for that pilot plant and proceed to finish the financing for it and get the thing built in Nevada and it'll be the first of its kind. Now once it's built and once you've tested the process, how long after that can we potentially see some kind of production out of that area? We published the timeline in our PEA, Ellis, and we're pretty close on to that. Here we are in Q1 of 2018. We're well into the design. We're into the procurement phase for that pilot plant, and Walter's working hard on the permitting as well. So we expect later this year to be issued the permits required and to fully finance that pilot plant. It's a project between 15 and $20 million to deliver, but that's design, build, and operate for nine months. And from that, of course, we'll be producing battery-grade lithium hydroxide that our customers can have to certify for future purchase. So about a year from now, that pilot plant will be running. Let's talk about those potential customers. And you're in Nevada, which is a great place to be. That's right. Nevada is a great mining jurisdiction. We've got a trained workforce. We have regulators who understand how to permit major projects. And what's more, a lot of new technologies have been broken in Nevada. For instance, heap leach gold, of course, was a boom there in the 80s. The regulators got the work done to get that permitted. And those companies went on, of course, to build giant gold mines in Nevada. We think the same can be true for lithium. After all, North America's only lithium producer is our neighbor, but they're using 50-year-old technology. So we're going to bring something along that's a little newer. Maybe we can shake things up a bit, but the local Nevada workforce and regulators are supportive and they're watching what we're doing. Now this has been a theme at least of mine here at this conference, clean tech, green tech, many people outside the mining sector. The general public doesn't have necessarily a positive view of mining, but we're nothing if not environmentally active. Today, breakthroughs with lithium batteries are facilitating electric vehicles, energy storage from renewable power, and the key ingredients in there are lithium, of course cobalt and graphite, all those battery metals we talk about about and what better for the environment than to be transitioning to those new technologies and as we've always known in the mining industry Ellis everything comes from the ground we either grow it or we mine it whether it's something that cleans up the environment or in the old days something that polluted the environment we need the raw materials and lithium is a key part of that so as far as I'm concerned we're part of the pillar of the uh, clean tech and green energy community because we're supplying the raw materials that can clean up energy production and energy storage let's talk about the share structure the company, Patrick, and your background. Well, I've been in the mining industry for 30 years. I happen to have been in the lithium industry for almost 10 years. I'm kind of an old gray hair in that space. I'm kind of known as a gold guy and a, and a lithium guy. I worked for major companies in the past. I am a geological engineer, and I'm a geochemist, which is a little bit of a quirky kind of geologist who knows some chemistry, and that fits well with working with lithium and lithium brines. The company has been around for about five years now, pretty long time for a junior company. We just closed a small financing with a syndicate led by Canaccord that put about five and a half million dollars in the bank. And we're sitting there with about 140 million shares outstanding and uh, a diverse shareholder base. Some new institutions coming into that and uh, a lot of retail shareholders as well. Our biggest shareholder is Lithium X, as a matter of fact, and second to them, Commodity Capital, a fund that specializes with a big part of their effort into battery metal space. And of course, let's not forget the Terracotta Project in Argentina. Right. Thanks for reminding me. The second area of focus for us is the first ever drill program on our Terracotta Lithium Brine Project in Salta Province. Drills are turning and uh, kind of exciting early stage for that project, but great address right in the Lithium Triangle, paved highway, gas pipeline very nearby. So a comfortable place to work and work's going smoothly. The drills are moving right along. Patrick, it's always a pleasure to see you. Thank you so much for joining me today at the program here at PDAC in Toronto. Thank you, Ellis. Good to be here. I've been visiting with Patrick Highsmith of Pure Energy Minerals. Pure Energy Minerals trades as PEMIF in the U.S. and as PE on the TSX Venture Exchange. 
Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com, or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes or TuneIn Radio. I'm Ellis Martin, and I'm a shareholder of Pure Energy Minerals. Did you hear something worth repeating? Find all segments of this program on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Once again, here's Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Paul Cronin, the CEO and Managing Director of Black Dragon Gold. Trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as BDG. Black Dragon Gold owns 100% of the Salave Gold Project in the Asturias region of Spain through its wholly owned subsidiary EMC. Salave is a technically robust project situated in a highly prospective region and recognized as one of the largest underdeveloped gold projects in Europe. Paul, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Ellis. Very pleased to be here as always. What is happening with the Salave Project in northern Spain? Well, look, as I uh, said to you last time we spoke, we were getting ready to do a drill program. I'm very pleased to say that on the 23rd of January, we started drilling on two sites. We've just finished our first hole. We should have the second hole complete in a day or two. And then we're going to continue to do another four holes, you know, without having the benefit of seeing the actual uh, chemical assay results. What we can say, just by visually inspecting the drill core, is that we've intercepted mineralization pretty much exactly where we were hoping to. So what does that mean going forward? Well, this is the interesting thing. This drilling that we're doing at the moment, as I said previously, is not really about a massive expansion of the number of ounces of gold that we've got in the deposit. This drilling is really designed to focus on geometry, geometry of the ore body and understanding where it goes at You know, what we know to date about the Salave deposit through the very extensive drilling that's been done is that this deposit is basically being fed by a series of hydrothermal conduits where solutions have sort of come up from deep in the Earth's crust and made contact with these sulfides and then disseminated across a series of lenses. But in the northwest of the deposit, there was an anomaly to that theory. And we could see by looking at the deposit in a 3D model that this structure here was not vertical. It was actually sub-vertical. This drilling campaign will help us understand whether this deposit is actually really open to the northwest end at depth, in which case we think that a further, more extensive exploration program could potentially add quite a few ounces. But the most important thing for us in terms of what we discover here is that the mining of approach to this deposit has always been, well, go underground and start mining at around 100, 110 metres and then work your way down. But what we're seeing down at around 250 to 300 metres is the grades are coming up quite substantially. Some of the historical drilling in the area that we are working at the moment intercepted very high-grade intercepts. We're talking sort of 20, 22 metres at around 40 grams a tonne. And so our approach, you know, subject to the results of this program, will mean that we'll probably start mining at around the 300 to 350 metre below surface level. Now, that, to most people, would sound, well, you're going to be going deeper and therefore it's going to be more expensive. Not necessarily. If you go deeper and you're mining higher grade, it presents a number of advantages particularly on a deposit like Salave, where there is an opportunity to substantially minimize the amount of surface, in, which means that we mine an area of, of the deposit and then we immediately take that waste rock, which is stored underground, amend it so that it becomes less porous and basically put it back in the mined out area. Now that substantially reduces the size 
of any tailings infrastructure that you would need at surface. And obviously for the local community, that's a massive positive. And that would mean that our surface infrastructure is substantially lower, would potentially reduce our costs and enable us to accelerate the permitting of the project. So we're quite excited by what we're seeing today. I'm really looking forward to seeing these drill hole results and seeing what they come in at in terms of grade and the impact on that on the geometry of the ore body. But today, I'm pretty encouraged by what we're seeing. You're doing things that the Spaniards and the Romans could not have done hundreds of years ago, or even the locals about 40 years ago with technology that was just not available. Then you're finding grades that perhaps they never found or they did at surface, but... Yeah, well, the Romans didn't have the metallurgical technology to extract gold from sulfide deposits. So the Romans essentially mined the oxide. They essentially broke up the rock and panned it like you would in a river. What we've got is a far more disseminated gold mineralization in pyrites, which requires uh, a bit of a chemistry set to recover, but that's consistent with 90% of gold projects that are in production today. So our approach is very different. And obviously the Romans mined this open pit. Well, we're going to go underground. And the reason we're going underground is the grade is much better underground. And the incremental cost of having an underground mine versus an open pit mine will be paid off by the fact that you're recovering less tons with more gold in. We've looked at this deposit in a number of ways. We think that uh, underground is the right way to go. And as I said, I think we can get most of our infrastructure underground as well, which will not only reduce costs, but it'll have a much lower environmental impact in the local environment and the local community. What's different about underground mining with the technology we have today than let's say it was 20 years ago? Look, there's not a a significant difference in that what we have now is the ability to quickly extract rock, have it tested, so we know the boundaries of our ore body. What that means is we have less dilution, so we're bringing up less waste rock relative to the total amount of, of ore that we're moving. And obviously that increases the amount of grade that we're putting through our plant and minimizes the cost of extraction of non economic ore. Is this similar to some of the very deep gold mines in South Africa and similar techniques with regard to underground mining? No, it's different. In South Africa, in the Vale Reefs, for example, those gold deposits are sometimes one and a half or two kilometers underground. So they access those mines through a very expensive shaft and they have multiple shafts that move people and ore up and down into the mine. What we're proposing is a decline. So we essentially construct an underground road that's about five meters by five meters. And that underground road dips at around 10 to 15 degrees and allows us to systematically move into different areas of the deposit and more selectively mine them. So we have less waste and more payable ore that we bring back into our flotation circuit. How are you capitalized moving forward to undergo this task? We believe there's a strong argument for doing further exploration underground. We'll make this decision over the next few months, but indicatively we're considering constructing an underground exploration decline, which will facilitate us to do more drilling without surface disturbance but also at lower cost. That underground decline ultimately would be the operating decline for the mines. What we're doing is advancing spend but not spending more than we need to. We'll have the opportunity to get underground and do a lot more exploration from there. And as I said, we'll make those decisions once we've rebound the resource in Q2. And the plan is to produce, correct? Absolutely, yeah. New Salabe is one of the highest grade and largest undeveloped gold mines in Europe. We are absolutely 
planning to produce. Some of the members of my audience have contacted me and they mentioned Black Dragon and I mentioned it, of course, in my circles and it's still an unknown. In fact, Spain's kind of an unknown in our sector. Uh, Not for you, of course, and perhaps not for me and perhaps not for the shareholders that you currently have. But why is this such an unknown story right now? Oh, look, I think there's been little activity uh, at Salave in the last four years. But Spain has a very active mining sector. There is copper mines, nickel mines, other base metal mines. There is a gold mine called Ervale, which is moving about 2,500 tons a day from underground, only about 60 kilometers from where we are at Salave. I think the project has never really had a, a management team dedicated to putting it into production. There's been lots of exploration and through the cycles, the funding available to it has gone up and down. I think the difference with Black Dragon, since we've taken the project over, is we've got a very, very strong and supportive shareholder base who are willing to allow us to continue to push toward bringing this project back into production because they fundamentally know that at those grades, And at that depth and the approach that we want to take in terms of the extraction of the ore body, it's going to be a very economic mine. And I always thought that the company was undervalued, and that's just me speculating and talking. And I I think it still potentially is, even though the market has uh, increased uh, significantly in the last few weeks, it's still potentially a very nice value if you're considering uh, investing in the company. Well, I think when a company is stagnant for a number of years, investors lose interest. So the share price is definitely undervalued for what it Scott, you know, a million ounces at just under five grams a ton. If we look at comparable companies, it should have an enterprise value of in the region of 70 to 80 million dollars, but it's got an enterprise value closer to 15. The onus there is on management, on me, to make sure that we're telling people what we've got, telling people what we're going to do, and more importantly, delivering on what we say we're going to do. So we came out in July after we took over Black Dragon and we said that we're going to do exploration. We're going to get a drill permit and we're going to drill out this Northwest extension. Well, we're doing that. You know, there were people who said to us, well, you know, it's going to take you a long time to get all the permits to drill. Well, it didn't. We had them in place and we've used them. So the project will pick up in value. And over the last four weeks since we've really been actively out telling the story, talking to brokers, talking to funds about what we've got at Salave and what Black Dragon is, the amount of interest is really picking up. And you can see that in our volumes and you can see that in our share price, which has basically almost doubled since the beginning of the year. But in saying that, we're still undervalued and we still believe there's plenty of growth to be had in Black Dragon equity. And if you look at what we're doing this year, obviously we've got some drill hole results coming out probably in mid-March and some more in April. We'll be putting a new mineral resource estimate on the project that we think will be a, a very positive development in Q2 this year. We hope to be doing another preliminary economic analysis to a 43101 standard in Q3. And then we'll obviously be making our applications for any development work moving forward. So I think there's a lot happening at Black Dragon. And as we continue to work on that, and as we continue to deliver results and inform the stock exchange of those and inform our investor base and those that are looking at the stock, we'll continue to see that share price tick up and the volumes tick up. Well, Paul, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. I look forward to another update as soon as you have one available. Thank you so much for joining me today in the program. Thanks very much, Ellis. I look forward to talking to you again soon. I've been speaking with Paul Cronin, the CEO and Managing Director of Black Dragon Gold, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol BDG. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com.
Did you hear something worth repeating? Find all segments of this program on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Once again, here's Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Gary Cope, the president and director of Barcelli Minerals Corporation, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as BME and the U.S. as BRSLF. Barcelli is a Canadian-based junior mineral exploration company with an impressive gold, silver, and copper exploration project on renowned mineral trends in Sweden. The management team of this company is widely recognized for the identification of La Preciosa Silver Gold Deposit in Durango, Mexico for Orco Silver. We join Mr. Cope today at the recent PDAC conference, the Prospectors and Developers Association of Canada, the largest mining conference on earth. Gary, welcome back to the program. Well, thanks for having me back, Gilles. Let's give our audience a quick overview of the company. Well, Barsley uh, Minerals is a joint venture with Agnico Eagle in northern Sweden. We're building a, a big gold deposit that Agnico Eagle is aggressively drilling and building ounces every day. And we're covered. It's a 55-45 joint venture split, which we're covered until pre-feasibility without having to put out any capital. Which means that Agnico is picking up all the expenses and doing all the work. They are and will be until they can deliver a pre-feasibility to us and at that point it'll be a 70-30 joint venture split with us having to contribute 30% of the cost. Fantastic. Now let's talk about Sweden. You don't really hear too much talk about it in the mining industry but it's one of the best jurisdictions in the world. The infrastructure is amazing and it's very rich in minerals. It is. A lot of people don't know that Sweden leads Europe in mineral production of all minerals. It's a very mining friendly country with you know rich history of mining. Now you would think that the taxation in Sweden might be very very significant but it's quite the opposite with regard to a mining concern. It is. It's a flat 22 percent which is one of the lowest in the world and with no NSRs or no extra taxes or anything on the mining. And of course the political risk is non-existent. It is. It's like you said it's one of the top two jurisdictions in the world with them and Finland going back and forth as number one. If you don't mind I'm curious I don't think I've ever asked you this question how did you find the property? Uh, We had a shareholder in OREC who got wind that this project might be available. It came from a company called Northland who made a decision to try and put some iron ore mines into production in Sweden and raised a a billion and a half and found out it wasn't enough and ended up going bankrupt. And we were fortunate enough to be on site at the time and got a really good deal, we thought, and also bought an NSR off them that we still hold in Oryx. Now that's a strategy more or less with your entire group, with the Belcara group. You look for opportunity where other people perhaps need to move on. Yeah, our model is to look at experts exploration projects that we think can get to a size that will attract one of the major miners. We've been successful. We sold La Preciosa in Mexico to Coeur, taking it from virtually no resource to 275 million ounces of silver and ended up in a bidding war and and eventually selling it to Coeur. Of course, a bidding war is a good thing. It's always a good thing. Now, some of those shareholders that were involved in Orco, are they involved with Barcelay? They are. uh, Our Orco shareholders, there was a move from Orco once it was bought out to move into Oryx and then Oryx, we spun Barclay out of Oryx one for one. So the Oryx shareholders became Barclay shareholders, and a lot of them had Orco previously. What does the share structure look like for this company? I think we're about 126 million shares fully diluted with a market cap right now of just around 100 million. 
Our last warrants are coming due this month, and uh, after that, the company's clean as a whistle. Who are some of the major investors? It's very tightly held. I think our largest shareholding would be Ingalls and Snyder out of New York. They own somewhere around 50 million shares. The next one would be U.S. Global in San Antonio, and uh, they own just over 10%, and then it would be management with also well over 10%. What can we look forward to as a shareholder, which I am during the next year? Much more drilling for Magnico. Hopefully some exciting news on some new deposits that they have found and are pursuing now, and a new update at the end of next year, which we hope will grow as much as this year's update did. Well, Gary, it's always a pleasure to see you. Thank you so much for joining me today in the program here in Toronto. Thanks for having me, Ellis. I've been speaking with Gary Cope, President and Director of Barcelli Minerals, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as BME and the U.S. as BRSLF. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Christopher Jones is the President and CEO of Westwater Resources, trading on the NASDAQ as WWR. Joining Mr. Jones today is Tyler Dinwoodie, the President of Alabama Graphite, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as CSPG and in the U.S. as CSPGM. Westwater Resources is an explorer and developer of mineral resources that are materials essential to clean and Energy production. Westwater holds dominant mineral rights positions in the western United States and the Republic of Turkey for both lithium and uranium deposits, as well as licensed production facilities for uranium in Texas. The company is slated for approval to acquire our sponsor, Alabama Graphite, a Canadian-based flake graphite exploration and development company with its wholly owned subsidiary registered in the state of Alabama. With the most advanced flake graphite project in the contiguous United States of America, with the acquisition of Alabama Graphite, Westwater Resources' objective is to become the first producing American graphite mine this century and to become a leading American supplier of specialty graphite for the growing green energy lithium-ion battery markets. Alabama Graphite security holders recently overwhelmingly approved the acquisition by Westwater Resources. Today I'm visiting with Mr. Jones and Mr. Dinwoodie at PDAC, the Prospectors and Developers Association of Canada, at the annual conference in Toronto. Chris, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Ellis. It's a pleasure to be here. If you don't mind, give our listeners an overview of the company. You bet. Westwater Resources, recently renamed as of 2017, is a 40-year-old company originally involved in the mining of uranium. Over the past five years, this team has been in place. We've restructured the company. We've broadened its portfolio of products to include not just uranium, but now lithium, and very soon to be graphite with the close of our transaction with Alabama Graphite. Now, why did you specifically select Alabama Graphite as an acquisition target? We uh, originally started discussions with Alabama Graphite and had identified them really as a very soon to produce cash asset. As we began to look at the organization and the project itself, that was confirmed. So if you were to look at our newly revamped business plan for Alabama Graphite, you'd see cash flow by the year 2021, revenues in the year 2020, a lower CapEx profile, and an optimized business machine. And part of the reason for that is the technology that you bring to the table. It's a hybrid of new technology and a hybrid of technology previously used before. Is that not correct? True enough. One of the reasons we can produce cash sooner is that we have removed the mine from the critical path of development. And by that I mean most mining operations are subject to lengthy permitting timelines. Alabama is a very special and a good place to permit a mine, but in case we get tripped up by, say, the Army Corps of Engineers or the EPA, we can afford the lengthened timelines because we're building the processing facility first. And we're using 50-year-old technology with a 
few bells and whistles on it to do the refining of the uh, graphite as we start up. Now what happens with that refined graphite as you prove out the process? So once you refine the graphite, post-processing of that graphite puts it into the battery markets. As you know, electric cars and other transportation batteries, field batteries to enable wind power and solar cells are a growing market for batteries. And what they need are not only new batteries and new tonnage of batteries, but they need enhanced battery performance. As we post-process this graphite material, it'll go into these different battery markets, making them more effective, making them more cost-effective for the manufacturers, and providing us an income stream. Is anyone else doing this in the contiguous U.S. that you can think of quite the way that Westwater is going to be able to complete this process? No, our project is unique. I'm sure our investors, and I'm one of them, would like to know what the business plan looks like going forward. How will that be enhanced? First of all, thanks for your interest in Alabama graphite and soon-to-be Westwater resources. We really appreciate it. What we've done with the business plan is de-risked it, not only from the mine permitting aspect, but by using older technology, we don't have to worry about the very steep development curves associated with those. We have time to go develop newer, different technologies now by putting the processing plant in place as fast as we can. So what we've done is we're going to build the pilot plant in 2018. It's operational in 2019. It will then describe for us the design parameters for the processing plant to be built in 2020, operational in 2021 with cash flow in 2022. What does the mine life look now for this project in Alabama? Well, the original mine life was 27 years by the PEA, but importantly, we're extending the mine life by not using it for the next five or six years. We won't build the mine until 2026, and we'll build that out of cash flow so the CapEx and other expenditures are delayed until we have cash flow. Let's talk about Alabama, the jurisdiction, the fact that it's almost a 24-7, 365-day availability to actually do the work in the ground. For those listeners here in Canada, for instance, yes, it's a 365-day operation with no snow to speak of. The weather there is benign, but the business climate in Alabama is what makes it truly amazing. We were in Alabama speaking with the Secretary of Commerce, Greg Canfield, the Chief of Staff to the Governor, our State Senator, and Alabama power not once but twice during a single day. Access to local officials and enthusiasm for this particular project is really unique in my experience. But I've only been doing this for 40 years. You don't expect to have to go to the capital markets anytime soon? Well, we're always available for capital market participation, don't get me wrong. But in order to build this project, we've reduced the capital expenditures from $43 million now to 30, and only seven this year. So our need to go to the capital markets is quite a bit less than originally forecast. In addition to that, remember we can finance this project using project financing, perhaps even supported by the state of Alabama. So think of our financing for the project, the $30 million we need to build it, really split up between project level debt, and by that I mean bonds, some equity financing, and some offtake financing as we land contracts to sell our material. Now you've sent samples to 22 potential end users of your product already, haven't you? That's correct. And let's talk about potential offtake partners. What does that look like down the road? Certainly you've had some discussions. Certainly the automotive industry has been uh, looking around for solutions with regard to lithium ion anodes and cathodes and usage of graphite. How's that progressing? Well, we can't talk about specifics for a lot of obvious reasons, but I can tell you a couple of the things we've done to ensure success. One is to put on Ty Dinwiddie as our vice president of marketing. He's presently president of Alabama Graphite, and we're excited about the continuity then of our marketing effort through Ty's efforts. So that's one way to ensure success. The other way to ensure success is to make sure that our pilot plant goes up as scheduled and is producing next year because our product qualification cycles then are ever-increasing quantities going to these different potential customers with the object of landing one of them in a contract. So as a shareholder of Alabama Graphite,
right, like many others, and an interviewer, I'm trying to do a mental adjustment of thinking about a graphite company into a uh, polymineral company, if you will, concentrated on the battery sector. Maybe you can bring us all up to speed. So the things we bring to the table is speed to market. We've accelerated this project now by a year or two, and by doing so, cash flow comes quicker. The reason we can do that is we have a little bit better economic war chest to service from an ATM and an equity line of credit. We have about $42 million of equity available to us in the marketplace now. Plus, we have the ability of, of using a smaller shelf in the United States. Remember, we're traded on the NASDAQ, and the NASDAQ is a very powerful market, over a couple of hundred thousand shares a day. And that kind of volume helps institutions get into your stock. And if they need to, shareholders can get out a lot easier. That kind of liquidity is very attractive now to investors. The other thing we bring is decades of experience in the manufacture, mining, and energy sectors. And while that's not directly always applicable to the technical parts of making graphite and refined products thereof, it is applicable to how we run businesses. We can find people to help us with the graphite business, guys like Ty Dinwoody, and we're working with some other professionals with whom they've worked to bring them along as well so that we have the technical firepower to go along with this economic firepower in our project. So Essentially, Tyler, if you don't mind, tell me what the acquisition means to Alabama Graphite shareholders and in a broader sense going forward. What can you do that you have not been able to do before? When Westwater completes this transaction, the new company will be a wholly owned subsidiary of Westwater Resources. What Westwater will be able to do in the graphite space is advance in a way that Alabama Graphite never could previously. The main focus here is revenues. Previously, it was building a mine. So the mandate of the, of the business, let's say its strategic objective, has changed entirely. So it's not necessarily just the acceleration of the timeline that Chris Jones and his team have brought to the table with us or the trimming of the capital expenditures and whatnot. It's the ability that they can deliver on this. And that's the big difference, that they've got a demonstrated track record and the economic capabilities, but their vision on knowing what's important, such as decoupling the mine for up to five years plus, focusing on revenues immediately. They're doing everything that is critical for the success of this company, because it's not just necessarily about getting those revenues, it's crossing the finish line to production first. This is a race to production. And with Westwater, we can achieve that in a way we never could. I've been speaking with Christopher Jones, the president and CEO of Westwater Resources. Trading on NASDAQ is WWR, and Tyler Dinwoody, the president of Alabama Graphite. Trading is CSPG on the TSX Venture Exchange and CSPGF in the U.S. Alabama Graphite is a paid sponsor of the Ellis Martin Report. I'm Ellis Martin. Steve Cope is the CEO and director of Silver Viper Minerals. Trading on the TSX Venture Exchange is VIPR. Silver Viper Minerals is a Canadian-based junior mineral exploration company with an exciting silver, gold, and base metal exploration project in Mexico the Clemente Project. The company's directors and management include industry professionals with a consistent track record of identifying and advancing successful mineral exploration projects. The Clemente Project is located near the city of Caborca in the state of Sonora, Mexico. It's part of the Sonora Mojave Megashear, a 700-kilometer-long trend defined by medium to large orogenic gold and silver deposits. We joined Mr. Cope today at the recent PDAC conference, the Prospectors and Developers Association of Canada, the largest mining conference on earth. Steve, welcome to the show again. 
Thanks for having me, Ellis. We've got something new and exciting that you've announced just recently with regard to Pan American Silver. Let's talk about that. Yeah, so with regards to our La Virginia project, we've had Pan American now come in. We've announced an LOI on the surrounding ground to the internal claims that were previously announced. and now brings the, the land package back to where it was when MineFinder was exploring it in uh, 2011. So we now got over 37,000 hectares of land. Now, you are getting ready to pen an agreement with Pan American Silver. Is that true? Yes, we would expect on both the internal claims and the deal with Pan American and then in the next coming weeks that we'll, you'll see a public announcements on the definitive agreements. Here we are in early March. You've got a geology team on site. What does that mean? Well, currently our geological team is running a mapping and sampling program across the entire 37,000 hectare package, looking for new exciting targets as well as sampling the existing areas that were already drilled. We're positive that we're going to see a lot of new target areas that we'll be able to make some brand new discoveries on. So you're an exploration and development company all at the same time. Absolutely. I mean, our expertise is certainly drilling and exploring and proving something up to where we can sell it to one of the majors and make our shareholders a lot of money. Are the majors already at your front door, more or less? Yeah, no, I mean, we've, I'm talking to people at the conference here. There's already certain ones that have said they've flown over the project and they want to get on site as quick as possible. So, no, it's, we have very good relationships with a lot of the major mining companies. So, what would keep you hypothetically from doing a deal in the very near future? Seeing that we can add a lot more value through our own so we don't sell too cheap. <laughs> Well, that's always the wish if you're a shareholder of the company, which I am, as a matter of fact. Our goal is to get the most for our shareholders. We're shareholders ourselves in the company. We put our money where our mouth is behind our companies, and we're believers that we're going to find something and add shareholder value. Well, you had a big success for shareholders years ago with regard to Orco Silver. Yeah, we sold the La Preciosa project to Core Mining. It was a bidding war between them and First Majestic, and we ended up selling that for $375 million. And that was a project that we, in fact, put drill hole number one in and then took it all the way to where we had 270 million ounces of silver. Bidding wars are kind of fun, aren't they? Well, let's hope we get in another one. They're a lot of fun. <laughs> Tell us about your team, if you don't mind. Well, we've got four senior geologists in our office. We're the Belcara Management Group, and then we have Gary Cope, who's chairman of this company, but is the president and CEO of a number of the other companies within our group. Our team's had ex exploration experience all over the world, and that's what we do. We go and we drill, we try and prove up a theory, and add shareholder value. So during the next six months, what sort of development Developments might we see potentially? Well, we're aiming for drilling early May, end of April. At that point, I think we'll have two rigs turning on this project, an initial 5,000 meter program, but I would expect that program not to stop. Based on success, we'll, we'll keep going and we're going to drill this project aggressively. And what's the share structure of the company for those that are just listening for the first time? We did our IPO last September. We currently have 42 million shares outstanding. The IPO was done at 25 cents and I believe we're currently trading at 17 cents a share. Canadian. Well, Steve, it's always a pleasure to see you. Thank you so much for joining me today on the program here in Toronto. Thanks for having me, Alice. It's always a pleasure. I've been speaking with Steve Cope, CEO and Director of Silver Viper Minerals. Trading of the TSX Venture Exchange's VIPR. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. They paid us for the privilege. Invest at your own risk and only after doing extensive research. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com.